Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 23rd of April with myself, Andreas Vansenaar, and my colleagues, Peter White, Harry Morgan, and Simon Thompson. It's a pretty heavy week this week, and I I, I was been struggling to understand. There's a whole load of new concepts and, and technologies, so I think there's a lot to unpack. What, what, what new concepts have you come across? I, I was just reading about some of the solar things and this high, solar to hydrogen. I, I need to read that properly. I think Harry did that. Uh, I think, yes. Well, we could start there. We, we could start there uh, because I think that's pretty exciting. The gist of the article is if solar can convert, can immediately convert. No, I've lost it. You tell us what it is, Harry. So I suppose the, the, the overarching principle is that it's solar energy being used directly to split water rather than converted solar energy into electricity and then powering electrolyzer to make water. I suppose the benefit of that would be that you then wouldn't necessarily need the electrolyzer unit as well. And then you could cut down the cost of the production of hydrogen, which potentially means that you could have one of these units that's potentially slightly less efficient in terms of the actual energy conversion and producing hydrogen at the same cost. So what we actually saw this week was the University of Shinzi was claiming that they came up with a way of increasing the uh, rate that hydrogen could be produced by 100 times or increase the efficiency 100 times. So the way that they've done that isn't actually through any new technique. It's a different way of actually loading a catalyst onto essentially what is another catalyst. So there's this barium tantalum oxynitride catalyst which is used to actually split water to create uh, hydrogen and oxygen and has that been used for a long time to do that are there other people it's, doing it? it's not a very widespread technology but it's definitely the technology that's been probably focused on the most in this sort of idea of producing hydrogen directly from from solar power okay. the problem is is that it's got quite a weak driving force and realistically what you need is some sort of co-catalyst to actually accelerate the reaction the problem with that though is that you it researchers so far find it really hard to actually load co-catalysts because often this is some sort of like platinum based catalyst actually loading the platinum sort of in sort of an equal dispersion throughout barium uh, catalyst itself so because when it's not dispersed sort of evenly uh, the reaction doesn't take place as as quickly there's less active sites uh, and you get a, a lower efficiency really in the soda to hydrogen conversion what Shinzo University have basically proposed is two steps. We've got an impregnation reduction, basically where you load the two sort of in a solution together and then sort of slowly form these crystals of, that include both uh, both particles for then photo deposition, basically. So uh, then you've actually got these catalysts um, in what looks like basically a solar panel. And last week you you were talking about Kyoto University doing something not not exactly the same, but similar with ruthenium and iridium. You were talking about a catalyst being used to generate hydrogen, but that was in in electrolysis. Yeah, so that was a just another advance within a different sort of an alternative catalyst within the traditional way that we produce um, hydrogen. So this is actually within an, an electrolyzer, this catalyst. I think, yeah, I mean, while neither technology really is, I'd say, close to any sort of commercial um, activity yet it's just sort of the jumps that we're seeing I mean we saw a 30-fold increase in production rate last week this is a hundred jump a uh, hundred <laughs> step fold which is again ridiculous but this is what we've come to expect from things like the solar sector I mean the, even Shinzo University itself has said yeah we will going to need another hundred fold jump really before we can see this technology becoming commercial it's not out of the realms of possibility and yeah it'll be very interesting to see sort of whether or not 
that can displace traditional sort of solar to electrolyzer to hydrogen. But we've got two moving targets here. We've got electrolysis using 30 times less energy to make hydrogen, which is a great step forward. And, but then um, this process direct solar making hydrogen 100 times more efficiently than the previous versions of direct solar. But again, ju just in the realms of possibility that that might compete with electrolysis. So they're both moving, both targets are moving. We don't know yeah. which, which approach is gonna land on, on a commercially stable, easily replicable version, um, but we don't know that one of them will. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, the Depo Department of Energy in the US has said that solar to hydrogen really becomes commercial when it reaches an efficiency of, say, 5 to 10%. Um, at the moment, it's the what we've seen this week is around sort of 0.24%. Um, we've seen some sort of edging towards 3%, but those are very sort of niche technologies. So, yeah, but I think that 5 to 10% mark it will really sort of move towards the sort of 10% mark, probably even higher as we sort of see electrolyzer technology move forward. I mean, it could be in the same way that we've seen the costs of wave power fall, for instance, but nowhere nearly enough to fall uh, within sort of realms of competitiveness with wind and solar. Uh, so realistically, it could end up just being a technology that's always on the fringe, or we could suddenly see some another sort of hundredfold, two hundredfold increase in its performance, and then suddenly it's the new disruptive technology that everyone's talking about. Harry, is is there any significance that both of these projects have come from Japan? Do you think things are happening in other parts of the world? Um, I mean, things definitely are happening in other parts of the world. Japan probably has the has been betting on hydrogen for the longest. So I think its relationship with academia in terms of hydrogen is probably the most sophisticated of anywhere in the world, really. I mean, companies like Toyota have always been very keen on hydrogen. So when you've got um, such a sort of giant, an industrial giant there, uh, you do sort of tend to see the industrial, acti uh, the academic activity sort of start to follow. Japan has very much led the field so far, but we're seeing a lot of activity in Europe at the moment, obviously, with um, a lot of the EU targets. Um, I mean, the US probably will start to ramp up from around now. I think that's something that we were intending to sort of talk about next week, really, was next year and their approach to hydrogen, which has been fairly slow so far. Um, but I think, yeah, Japan definitely has sort of the most mature, I'd say, hydrogen industry at the moment. But yeah, it's still a long way off, actually. It's being... probably spending more research dollars on hydrogen than, than, uh, than anywhere else in pure research in universities. And that that's, I mean, it, it doesn't matter where these things start. The university network is, they cooperate, they talk to one another. These ideas spread very rapidly. Um, it doesn't, it, it, it's industrial might that decides um, how, how, how they get deployed. We, we know Japan's very keen on hydrogen, but it has been for 25 years. And it's been largely a mistake to be obsessed with hydrogen for the last 25 years especially when it comes to um to fuel cells in cars because they haven't been they've not come down in price enough it just means it's still embedded there within their um in their university departments and there are specialists there both of those stories were exciting i i, I really think that they should be top but however what we did put top was um the the biden earth day summit uh, yeah. emerging and I think this is this is also um, really important. And we, we said it back when Trump was in power that the moment America can take the leads, dragging everybody into renewable energy and accelerating it, the the attitudes would change at government. One of the things that I'm always shocked at is voters get climate change, scientists get climate change, the electricity industry gets climate change. 
politicians don't get climate change until last. They are the last piece of the puzzle. And once you get an enthusiastic climate change adherent in the White House, you're going to see Brazil in particular dragged along kicking and screaming, Mexico dragged along kicking and screaming. And if they can convince China to be part of the initiative, then that will infect ASEAN and places like Indonesia and Malaysia, who basically are willing but don't really have any resources. Slowly this thing will become global. And so the laggards will be will be brought into line. And I think that's I think Biden doing that is 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 really to be commended. It's probably been long overdue and it probably was is what was expected of I suppose any any Democrat in this at this point in time, especially with sort of the COP26 summit coming up. I think this target is probably just a first step. I mean, I I really would I'd be really surprised if a net zero by twenty fifty target isn't announced in the US before COP twenty six. And I mean, it's almost certainly that they're going to be announcing that they're going to try and get the power sector down to, I think it was carbon free by 2035. So definitely sort of steps in the right direction by the US. Um, no, the Australians the, the one... are saying, no, we're not going to do it. We're not copying anyone else. Central government, Australia. The, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Australia is a really interesting one in itself because, yeah, it's just being driven in two different directions by regional policy and national policy. I mean, the US has to a certain extent been over recent years so I suppose all it will take in Australia is a change in government and then suddenly we'll see the same sort of targets there I mean I'm not sure when the next uh, general election is in Australia but it could well be then that that 2023 I think yeah and I mean uh, obviously it makes a difference to your head start in this sort of thing but I mean the the one thing that I have said I find frustrating about the targets I'm seeing from from the likes of the ones you see from Joe Biden this week are that they, they focus on a 2005 benchmark I mean the EU and 1990 for the UK, it's in, in separate, yeah. Um, it's easy for the sort of general public to misconstrue these targets and think, oh, we're going to see half the level of emissions between now and 2030. Whereas the US actually was already seen, sort of, I think it's around a 16%, 17% decrease in emissions. And they're not redundant in any means, but they definitely aren't uh, sort of as ambitious as they seem. I mean, to be fair, the US one does infer sort of a doubling of decarbonisation activity. But yeah, it, it's easy to... It's difficult to say that it's not greenwashing at all when it's based on a target which is so far in the past. Because if you say like a 50% reduction and you've already reduced it by 25%, then it's really only a 33% reduction, that kind of thing. And Brazil, Brazil, I remember, I think last year changed its calculations so that they can still reduce from an old benchmark in like 1990 or something while actually increasing their emissions. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of creative accounting going on. I mean, that's something we've seen. A good thing we've actually seen from the UK earlier this week with their with their new target was that they've said from around 2030 they'll start counting international aviation and shipping in their carbon budget, which is um, it's amazing that that's not counted now. I mean, it's the same way that we see the oil majors not counting the emissions from their the actual burning of their oil. So yeah, it's all in the accountancy really. And you would expect politicians to make statements which make them look good. They're used to that. I think the difference is the behind the scenes influence on other countries. I think that's going to be the, that Biden will apply pressure to countries in the American orbit. And I think that's going to be really helpful. Meanwhile, um, with a bit of Google Translate, and uh, a Chinese document um, doing the rounds um, in Chinese only. Uh, we managed to piece together 
that the National Development and Reform Commission and the National Energy Board want to build 30 gigawatts of uh, energy storage by 2025. It's, it's not, we're not abundantly clear on what 30 gigawatts is because that's a capacity measure and a number of uh, installations in, uh, of energy storage in China are uh, two hour, um, some are four hour. Um, that might therefore mean anything between 60 and 120 gigawatt hours of energy storage to be uh, uh, installed in the next five years. And it it was it was actually put as um, they they are usually two gigawatt uh, two hours. If you look in our database, there's a number that are longer than that, um, and and it depends. And there's an awful lot of them that are vanadium. I mean, we've got at least six or seven vanadium flow, and there's even a an iron chromium flow, and there are a handful of lithium iron, and um, and you can see that what what they're looking for here there is influence coming from the chinese energy storage alliance because they've been banging on about this for the last six months and and they seem to be getting their way a number of things number one we need to if energy is all the same price at any time of day you can't use storage um, you can't build a business model for storage around arbitrage you can't buy cheap energy and solar energy in the day and then deliver it at night for as you can in all the Western economies. So we're starting to see different pricing in different parts of China at different times of day with a peak off peak and super peak pricing. Um, and they've been asking for that. And that's what this, you know, and the only way you're going to make this economically viable is to have that. And and it is a good idea that if if you've got energy that's being produced, say, for instance, from a nuclear plant, and it, it likes a flat energy output for 24 hours, that in the middle of the night, that energy has to be sold off more cheaply than in the daytime, when it, in, in prime time. So we, we see this in all the economies that, that, that are capitalists. We, don't, we haven't seen it in the communist economy, but they, they want to work out why the Americans are, why the conditions are right in America for energy storage, and they want to recreate them. And I think they, uh, they're going some of that way with just encouragement to the regions to look at all and every type of energy storage. And they even mentioned compressed air and, um, uh, and non-chemical versions of you know, physical uh, storage. And, and they, they have a huge amount of storage in, in hydro. Um, but they have very little pumped storage. It's mostly pure hydro. So um, yeah, we could see we could see a, a number of things come out of this. The one real, the, the, literally again, not not the, not in this paper, but the Energy Storage Alliance were, were calling for people like Huawei to um, sell storage to people's homes, which is something that we've we've not really seen in China so far. Uh, again, if if energy costs the same at whatever time of the day or night, and if you're Feeding tariff is the same at any time of day or night. You just use your, the solar as you produce it, and then you can't use you sell to the um, to the utility. There's no requirement to store it if the price doesn't change. But if there is an arbitrage play to be had, then there there is a uh, a reason to store it. Um, that, that's that's as, as uh, much as we've got on that. I mean, I think that will develop. And there'll be more statements from the Chinese government over the coming weeks and months. Who did the piece on Texas? 
Hendricks. Yeah, I did. Two, two, two straight. By now, we've seen some more bills in Texas in the aftermath of that uh, big power cut in February. And really, that so the Texas House of Representatives has granted initial approval to some more bills. They did some more immediately afterwards. And uh, it's the same old story, really. More more requirements for weatherization, which is really the core of the issue there. Um, but they've also got a couple of pro-gas moves, as you would expect from uh, the politicians there. Right. They, they, they're proposing that renewable generators should have to pay for reliability services, which doesn't mean battery energy storage. It means probably gas plants. Uh, and another possibility I saw mentioned was that they would, that if the federal government under Biden tries to subsidize renewable energy more, uh, they will counterbalance that by introducing their own state level subsidies for gas. So they're really trying to keep it alive as long as possible. And I, I was reading a bit more on, on the original power cut in February. I was quite astonished. Apparently, um, when they took down some of the powers to keep um, to, to make sure that supply was ahead of demand, they didn't have a list of all the natural gas facilities. And they actually cut power to what I think were natural gas distribution facilities. And then the gas plants couldn't get the gas they needed to run. So they actually sabotaged the um, power supply even more. And of course, that should be listed as critical infrastructure, but it just wasn't because they're so entrepreneurial defined. in that part of the world. People just, you know, put together a guess. Um, they, they drill a hole, they do some fracking, whatever it is they do, and they just register and they just sell it. And and it's it's purely commercial. And everything is surely electricity is one of those things which you need to guarantee for people and you need to guarantee it with a range of prices and it needs to be regulated um, it needs to be a very basic service like broadband that you can definitely complain to someone if it's not a good service instead you've got these rampant capitalists in texas just trying to get rich and not and, and getting rich is more important than people's being kept alive with heat I mean, it just it, it that's what's wrong. I mean, it, weatherization is a consequence of that. If that attitude could be got rid of, then weatherization, people would say, yeah, it's sensible to weatherize these things, isn't it? Because we can do a better service. And the only way you're going to sort that out is, is to have penalties for people who can't deliver the energy that they promise. And, and there is no promise of electricity in some, a market that doesn't have a capacity market. And I think, Harry, the week that happened, uh, hit the nail right on the head. Failure to have a capacity market, which is not, as you pointed out, Andrews, is not one of the things they called for. I think I think this FERC needs to get involved um, and uh, whether they are supposed to have power over ERCOT or not, the central federal government needs to get involved here and, and mandate some change. Oh, no, none of th another thing I saw was, um it which is what the electricity reliability, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, the regulator there, uh -huh. um, it automatically approves maintenance requests if they're made more than 45 days in advance. And now, just earlier this month, there was like there was another scare, and it wasn't a hot day or a cold day for loads of air conditioning or heating. They just had loads. They had a third. I think they had 33 gigawatts of power plants all offline at the same time for maintenance out of a total of 120 gigawatts. And I think that's because the the February power cut was about 45 days before. So everyone said, hey, we want to do some maintenance. 
because we've had these really cold temperatures and we want to have all of our stuff online in the summer when the the, the prices are driven up high. And so they're all down in, in early April. And people were asked by ERCOT to reduce their consumption. And everyone was thinking, why? It's a normal day. Are we going to have another power cut? What the hell is going on? So it's just, there is no, it's just, power is something that mostly can't be stored. And it's something which is not just an individual market where you buy it when you want it as an individual, because it's 40 million people all drawing from the same grid. And it's just bizarre that you don't have more central control. So give a little bit of an insight, Harry, into what's going to be in your upcoming report. Uh, I thought you stole a bit of your own thunder because when you do the press release for the report, um, it's going to say the same things. But still demand, uh, interestingly, I had not thought that it was going to grow considerably. I, I got into my head that China is maxing out at the moment and that it won't, there won't be other economies which can drive uh, steel. But you, you're saying all of those uh, Asian tigers are going to need steel in the future so that the steel demand will grow by 60% has to be decarbonized before it does that. What I wanted to do to, with this article was essentially lay out sort of a precast for the report. Um, I think what we're really addressing the report that's not addressed in the article is the ways in which steel will be decarbonized. I think that's so obviously that's sort of the, the main objective really through to sort of 2050 is trying to decouple economic growth with our CO2 output and and I think that is something that is being achieved something that will be achieved but I don't think and this is what we say through the article is the steel demand just can't be I mean we need steel for hospitals we need it for cars we need it for buildings we need it for the machinery to build all of that so um, while there will be some probably natural sort of reduction in terms of maybe people using their cars less maybe reusing more innovative materials I think gem- the general trend will be for steel demand to to increase because there is this possibility that we actually can have green steel and we can have a much more circular economy for steel. By 2050, what we're saying is that there are going to be around a, a, an annual demand for around 3 billion tonnes of steel, which is a, about 60% more than it is today. I think it was around 1.85 billion uh, last year. And I mean, so if we're looking at it from developed countries, what happens is you see countries develop, we see this sort of surge in demand as things are built before it sort of plateaus. So in the UK or US, for example, you might see sort of between 150 to 250 kilograms used per person per year might be greater in countries like South Korea or Japan where there's obviously a bit more manufacturing and so when you've got this plateau you generally have this sort of stock around 10 gigatons of steel per person in a country and at this point it's a much easier sort of green the industry so the benefit about steel is that it can be 100% of it can be recycled so once you get to that point you can actually really start just sort of using the circular economy idea and actually having basically green steel for, for nothing, uh, using sort of electric arc furnaces just to remelt steel and just basically repurpose it. And um, in, in the US, for example, we've already seen sort of 72% of uh, steel actually comes through that route. But in China, it's much, much lower. Um, and the truth is there is that China is just far too young sort of economically. Uh, I mean, we saw basically a five-fold growth in demand between sort of 2000 and 2010 and a lot of the so meaning that a lot of the steel that is installed is nowhere near the point where it's going to be recycled i mean buildings sort of 40 to 50 years cars of 20 years so there just simply isn't the recycle the stock there to be recycled obviously there will be a trend of more available scrap over the coming years but the same issue is yet to come in countries like india pakistan nigeria all countries that are going to hold sort of nearly half the world's population by 2050 and basically what that means is we'll still have primary production 
uh, needed through to 2050. I think we're seeing a 43% increase globally, while scrap will increase much more. But we will still need to shift our current methods of production using coke and coal uh, for blast oxygen furnaces, basic oxygen furnaces and blast furnaces to other practices. And, I, and that's really what the, the report's going to focus on is these two schools of thought of can we are we, are we going to use carbon capture or are we actually going to go for a completely new process probably using hydrogen and so that's really sort of the precursor i wanted to set out in that article and, and just as a preview i suppose it, it, the the way we really see it is is down this hydrogen route